and welcome. I'm Will. And I'm Alicia. This is Enter the Rabbit Hole. Each week we dive into and dissect the weird, the momentous, and the downright interesting. And today we're covering Mansa Musa. Yes, we are. Um, how you doing? I'm good. We uh, we did just have a six-day work week. So yeah. That was rough. Yeah, we did. Um, in the run-up to the upcoming Mid-Autumn Festival, for those who have lived or worked in East Asia before, you might be aware that uh, you typically get time off for things like Mid-Autumn Festival, Lunar New Year, Dragon Boat Festival. But what many companies, or sorry, what, what the government will do is because you get a long weekend, you have to make up your time in advance. So four-day weekend, yay. But prior to that, one-day weekend. Aww. The deal is basically you have the Tuesday off, but you don't have the Monday off. But they want to give you the Monday off. So why don't we make up that Monday the week before? Mm-hmm, yeah. Kind of a flawed system in my, my perspective, but... Yeah. Does it feel slightly abusive? I don't know. We'll let you decide. So uh, anyway, we're coming off the back of that, and we're coming in, and we're coming in hot, and we're ready to tell you about an exciting chapter of... Uh, I guess, le- lesser-known lesser history. West African history. Yeah, so lesser-known by our standards mm. anyway. Uh, but before we do that, if you're listening, go ahead and follow the show and leave us a review. Good, bad, or ugly, we'd love to hear from you. Also, if you have any ideas for future episodes, please share them with us. You can find us on etrhthepod at gmail.com or at etrhthepod on social media. All right, so... Mansa Musa, that's the guy that we're talking about today. Yeah, actually, as we started Enter the Rabbit Hole and started this whole alphabetical thing, it was one of the first uh, letters we decided on. Yeah, way back when we decided when we come to M, we're definitely going to do Mansa Musa. I guess because our our self-imposed remit at Enter the Rabbit Hole is that we want to dive into things that you have maybe heard in passing but you don't know a great deal about. And so that's something that I I had come across him originally on a Crash Course World History video, talking about this idea that I guess students from the West don't really come across that often, which is this notion that when you think about Sub-Saharan Africa, you... I don't know, we're always bombarded with these images of, like... Huts and poverty. Yeah, lack of technology, lack of infrastructure. Lack of innovation. Yeah, in some cases, this notion, like, a lack of culture. Like, these mm. things, the, the these groups of people just didn't exist before... Uh, the Portuguese came yeah, in the 1400s. <laughs> exactly, before European colonists showed up. And actually, the, the truth couldn't be further from from that idea. So yeah, we're we're going to be diving into one of those specific stories today and then talking a little bit more broadly about it. So if you haven't heard of Mansa Musa, I forgive me because in my head I keep wanting to say Mansa Musu, which is definitely not his name. No. <laughs> but Mansa Musa, aka Mansa 1 of Mali or Mansa Kita of Mali, Uh, was a fabulously wealthy and fabulously generous king. He was born in 1280 CE and ruled over the West African nation of Mali from 1312 until his death in 1337. Uh, At the time of his reign, Mali was one of the richest kingdoms in Africa 
And Mansa Musa was the richest person ever. Yeah. I mean, he he's up where he's up there with the likes of the Rockefellers. Um, and we're gonna give you some examples shortly to to show you exactly how rich he was, but it's it's really difficult to uh, overstate how much wealth this one individual had. So let's talk modern references. Mm-hmm. Um, richest man in the world today? You are thinking about people like I guess Jeff uh, Jeff Bezos, mm-hmm. Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg. You're talking about Bill Gates, Warren Buffett. Yeah, precisely. Uh, I did come across this. Uh, apparently, on the on the Forbes list, the second highest is this uh, French fashion dynasty, mm. uh, and they are worth just a little bit less than Jeff Bezos. And yeah, I'd never heard of them before. Uh, we'll we'll need to look up the name later on, but but yeah, those are the people that pop into my mind. Yeah, so take Jeff Bezos, who in twenty twenty one was worth one hundred and seventy seven billion. Add Bill Gates to that, one hundred and twenty four billion, and then a little sprinkling of uh, Warren Buffett on top, who is a uh, uh, ninety six billion. We believe Mansa Musa was worth. An estimated $400 billion. Yeah, so essentially worth those other three guys combined, uh, which is insane. And he didn't even have his own spaceship. Or cowboy hat, we presume. I, uh, we don't know that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. It, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a lot of money right there, folks. That's Absolutely. A lot of money. Um, but he didn't just have a lot of money. He also helped develop cities such as Timbuktu and Gao and imported architects from the Middle East to design new buildings for these burgeoning metropolises. This was during the period that some scholars refer to as the Islamic Golden Age. See our side quest, Golden Ages episode for more info. And Musa was pivotal in, learn- in turning Mali into one of the centers of learning in the Islamic world. Although he had already inherited a wealthy kingdom from his predecessor, Mansa Abu Bakr II, he would greatly promote the country's trade routes, making them much wealthier still. Yeah. So he he starts off as... So Mansa just means king or emperor. So his name is, is Musa. Um, and he starts off not as king, but when he takes over, he already inherits like the super wealthy country because... Mali has salt mines and gold mines. Mm-hmm. And I think it's worth acknowledging, because we are talking about uh, 800 years in the past, some of, our, some of the sources disagree on the exact details. And I think we're, we're kind of getting into Boudicca territory as well. There's some people that they don't argue that Mansa Musa never existed, but that a lot of what we know about him is flawed. So we've drawn from a number of different re- uh, a number of different sources. Again, as always, the sources will be listed in the show notes. But but yeah, they all kind of broadly uh, paint the same picture. Yeah. However, there aren't any direct sources from like his reign. I don't think a lot of our sources come from after. So, spoiler alert, he goes on a, a pilgrimage. After his pilgrimage um, to Mecca, there were a lot of Islamic scholars who wrote about him. And that's where most of the information about him comes from, not directly from West Africa. Yeah, or they're uh, secondhand sources because mm-hmm. they're writing about conversations that they had with him during his pilgrimage, for example. So one of the things that I wanted to highlight was that 
uh, one one of the sources that I listened to said that he was actually from a royal lineage himself, but he was not directly in line for the throne. Um, and also, and another source that I consulted said that uh, he was the the brother of the person that he was the predecessor of. However, I think most sources agree that he was actually his his general or he was a member of his staff. So most sources that I've seen, he was not the brother. He was related to um, Abu Bakr. Basically, Abu Bakr's father or grandfa- grandfather, I believe, was the first king of Mali. And... Musa's father was uh was the g- nephew. So basically he's the he's the great nephew of the first king of Mali. So he is of royal descent, but he's not in line for the throne mm-hmm. un- until <laughs> Yeah. Uh so it, it might be a good point to talk about uh the the founding mm-hmm. of the Mali Empire. Yeah. Uh, so the Mali Empire was founded by Sundiata Kita in 1235 CE. So not all that long before the, the reign of Mansa Musa. He was born to a wealthy family of the Malenke people. I'm assuming that is how it's pronounced. As always, apologies in advance for any mispronunciations. We, we do try our best. Uh, so he, he was born into the Malenke people of the kingdom of Kagaba in what was then part of the Ghana Empire. Interestingly, the Ghana Empire was hundreds of miles to the northwest of modern Ghana. Uh, it actually sat at what is now the borders of Senegal, Mali, and Mauritania. The name Sundiata Kita literally means the Lion King or Lion Prince, and he has his own origin story worthy of a Disney animation. The oral sagas about Kita say that when he was young, he was a very sickly child, and he was born with some kind of deformity. This may have been why, when the rulers of Ghana had his brothers murdered, Kita was spared. So already you've got kind of kind of the Lion King origin mm. story. All he needs is to be uh, to spend some time out in the wild with uh, a friendly warthog and meerkat, and Eat there a lot you go. Of grubs. Eat a lot of grubs. They're good eating. So in typically heroic fashion, the young Kita grew up to be incredibly strong and eventually led a rebellion against the Ghana Empire. He united several West African tribes under him to stand against King Sumanguru, the ruler of Ghana, whom Kita defeated at the Battle of Kirina in 1235 CE. So that's when the the actual Mali Empire was founded. After this, Sundiata Kita set about conquering some of the other surrounding nations and cemented what would become one of the richest empires in the world. With its vast gold and salt mines located in the south of the empire, they were already off to a very good start. And and one source that I read said as well, like, anything that you read about the Mali Empire will say uh, they had vast salt deposits, which is very important at this time. They also had a lot of gold, equally important. And they also traded in ivory as well. Mm-hmm. And slaves. They they had a, a fair number of slaves as well. So they had multiple... Uh, Avenues re- of wealth? <laughs> yeah, revenue streams, I guess. They got a lot of iron They diversified. The <laughs> well, that's the key. You gotta, you gotta diversify that portfolio. Any, any Warren Buffett will tell you that. So... Of all of history's great empires, the Mali Empire might be one of the most obscure and least well-known. Well, at least 
the most obscure and least well-known to Westerners. A Eurocentric worldview could be to blame, as most people could probably spot a few facts about Roman legions and aqueducts, but in fairness, anyone who studied at primary school in the UK could also probably tell you about how the ancient Egyptians made papyrus, or how they removed the brains of pharaohs to turn them into mummies. But it is odd that we never covered this astounding and relatively recent period of history. Yeah, for, uh, for those who did guess, I wrote that part of the script. <laughs> uh, because when I think back at like my history tutelage at primary and secondary school, we covered the mummies and how they made papyrus, how they made reed boats, how they... Um, yeah, how, how how you make a mummy. The sexy parts of North African history. <laughs> I guess, yeah, specifically North African, specifically ancient. And, yeah, it's the, the kind of thing that's designed to capture kids' imagination. I remember us covering the Vikings as well, which is particularly relevant if you come from the north of the UK, because you're, you're on uh, Vikings' old stomping grounds and doing things like designing our own viking shields that we hung up on the walls which That's was kind of cool. cool yeah uh, and finding out that they didn't really have horns in their helmets and all that good stuff what what kind of things do you cover at school what jumps out a lot of world war ii okay um, world war ii ad nauseum i think the civil war a lot of american-centric history but oddly enough, not the Vietnam War Strange. or the Korean War. Strange. Um, it's almost like people <laughs> like talking about uh, the matches that they won, but mm. not the ones that they lost. Weird. We didn't lose the... that. That was a tactical withdrawal. Everybody knows that. Yeah, it was a tie, right? It was <laughs> yeah. a tie. That's how didn't wars work. Penalties. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I I specifically took European history in. Uh, my last year of high school, which is something you could only take if you're taking like an AP course, which is like, I don't know, like basically like college credits. It's like a, an extra hard course or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and then it wasn't until university that I took my first um, Asian history and my first like uh, Islamic world history. Yeah. Um, and I think that is such a shame because... I must have studied World War II probably on four separate occasions. You know, sure, the older you get, like, the the darker it gets, and you talk more about, like, the Holocaust, and you read Anne Frank, and, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But I don't think we should study that to the, at the expense of world history. Yeah, of course. But, I mean, of course, we're American, and everything's about us. Anyway, so, now that we've... Uh, successfully yeah, disqualified yeah. ourselves as, <laughs> as history teachers. Let's talk history. Okay, so um, the most important thing here is that from 1235 to 1670, Mali had its own empire that covered a huge swath of Western Africa. The borders of the Mali Empire stretched from the Atlantic Ocean in modern-day Senegal and Gambia and ran as far south as Sierra Leone in Liberia. From there, it followed the Niger River east, Touching the outskirts of Cote uh, the Ivory Coast. <laughs> but that's not what it's called anymore. Cote d'Ivoire? I, I believe it's Cote d'Ivoire. Cote d'Ivoire. But we're probably both wrong. Um, and Burkina Faso. And touched the westernmost tip of Niger. Suffice to say, this covered a massive chunk of land and was itself made up of several smaller Malinke kingdoms. 
At its height, under the reign of Mansa Musa, the Mali Empire was was around 2,000 kilometers across. He managed to consolidate and expand the empire's territory through military might. However, rather than attempting to assimilate the surrounding peoples and cultures and rule unilaterally as an absolute dictator, Musa had a different approach. He placed a number of governors in charge of the empire's various territories. Each of these territories were taxed, and this helped to increase the wealth of the Mali Empire. One thing that I did come across, and yet I I struggled to find multiple uh, sources about it, uh, which is why I didn't include it in the script itself. Um, Mansa Musa, at at the time of his reign, Mali, uh, or the Mali Empire was still beset by bandits on various different trade routes. And these bandits, I believe, were called the Toregs. And so what he did with the Toregs, rather than sending out his military forces to try and wipe them out, he basically brokered deals with them whereby he would pay them to lay off the trade routes. So he was he was investing a little bit of money on the front end so that trade could flow freely through the Mali Empire, which... Smart. I mean, yeah, and and was part of the reason why it was so incredibly successful. And so, a good example of him not being an absolute dictator and trying to rule with an iron fist. Well, to me, reading this is kind of like reading uh, parts of like the Roman Empire history. You mm-hmm. know, at times the Roman Empire had huge swaths of land, and it didn't try to necessarily assimilate them all under Roman culture to various degrees. But basically, um, that's one reason why they were successful. Uh, and then implementing infrastructure into those places. Yeah. I mean, it It doesn't, you know, if you're a, a smart emperor, you're not trying to get everyone to speak the same language or pray to the same God. The most important thing is that everybody has their own McDonald's and that everyone can get a Big Mac, even if the sauce that they put on it is a slightly different flavor. That's the most important thing. We all know that. Yes. yes. And in our hearts, I think we've always known that to be true. We've <laughs> praised the golden arches. Amen. Uh, so let's talk about how uh, Mansa Musa got himself into the job in the first place. Unlike many kings and queens, Mansa didn't come into his role as ruler of the Mali Empire strictly through lineage alone. Instead, he was positioned, as we said earlier, uh, either as a a brother to Abu Bakr II or as a high-ranking official in his court. Mansa Abu Bakr II was something of a visionary. He hypothesized that there must be something on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean, and he was determined to find out what. Thus, in 1312, he ordered a fleet of 200 ships to be sent across the Atlantic and to only return when they found land. This didn't work out terribly well for the fleet. Only one ship returned, and when it limped back to port, it carried a message of, quote, a river within the ocean that had swallowed the rest of the ships. What did Abu Bakr do with this information? Why, he doubled down, of course. According to the account given by Mansu Musa during his visit to Cairo, This time, Abu Bakr ordered that 2,000 ships be launched into the Atlantic, 1,000 full of men and 1,000 full of gold, water, and provisions. And then he came back and it all ended happily ever after. Yes. Were you aware that the Mali Empire uh, visited the Americas? Hey. Uh, Uh. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Oh, and he, of course, would be going along for the ride. Uh, Talk about having a micromanaging boss, am I right? 
Uh, in his stead, he would leave Musa in charge of the empire until he returned. And as he never returned, well, you can guess the rest. I just want to jump in at this point and say there is some speculation that this voyage was actually a success and that this confederation of West African peoples visited the Americas 200 years before Christopher Columbus. Some online forums and articles will point to DNA evidence or some of similarities between West African tribes and native peoples of the Americas, and others reference early accounts of mosque-like structures that were found by later settlers, the, uh, the rulers and many of the inhabitants of the Mali Empire at this time uh, being both Muslim. Some of them also, I guess, adhered to earlier traditions and religions, but, but uh, Islam was very much the religion of this time uh, in that part of the world. Uh, this is certainly a fun thought experiment, and I can see the appeal of this particular claim, However, in my research, I wasn't able to come across any hard evidence to back up these assertions, as enticing as they might be. So when we were talking about this possibility in the research for this episode, basically, I was curious to know what the ships that they had were like. Like, how, how seaworthy were they? You know, in terms of exploration... The Chinese were really uh, into sea exploration, but their ships mostly weren't seaworthy enough to make it uh, through, like, the middle of the ocean. Mm -hmm. So I'd be curious to know, because I can't find any pictures of Malian ships from the 1300s, right? Like, any kind of paintings or anything like that. So I'd be curious to know. And also, even if I did, I wouldn't be able to tell you if that ship was seaworthy. <laughs> like... Well, uh, for those who haven't seen Alicia, she actually has a full beard. She wears an eye patch. I'm she always has... smoking a pipe. Mm -hmm. She'll start a lot of sentences with, yeah, <laughs> be a fine day for the fish. And I'm like, that's great. But where did you want to have lunch? Yeah, you're you're not um, super, super nautically minded. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Are <Sorry>. you? <laughs> no, also Feels no. Feels like a bit of an attack. <laughs> I am. You're not. No, so neither one of us would be able to, to, I guess, assess the seaworthiness of their of their ships. Yeah, but it's. Uh, I guess it's an interesting idea that because we already know that the Vikings were there before Columbus, mm -hmm. right? They they've already been to to what is now modern day Canada, but still, of course, Columbus gets all the credit. Yeah. Rapist, murderer. Yeah, I mean, he, he, he gets the whole thing left at his feet. I don't think anyone is pointing to Leif Erikson and the Viking settlers, and they're like, and they fucked up the inhabitants <laughs> of the Americas. You know, it's, um, it, it's primarily the, the uh, Colombian explorers who were responsible for that. So, in some ways, like, if you didn't quote-unquote discover the Americas and settle in the Americas... Great, because you don't have that bag of dog shit sat at your feet. Uh, yeah, I guess so. Um, I guess it means you're not, by default, a horrible person. Yeah. They just didn't have the chance, is all mm -hmm. I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe they could have been horrible people. Give them a chance to be arseholes. <laughs> okay, so... Would this be... A wonderful juncture for us to take a little break. It would be, and so I would have told you if you hadn't jumped in. Oh, I'm so sorry. All right. For forgive me. During the break, please forgive me. I won't. Have a good break!
And we're back. Okay, so Molly was already fabulously wealthy when the crown was dropped into Musa's lap, but he pushed the borders, literally. With his large standing army, he overtook the salt mines of Taghaza in the north and the gold mines of Wangar in the south. Sure, we all love gold, and none of us more than that Mansa Musa, but salt, as we've talked before on this show, was a huge moneymaker. By salting food and or brining it, you can eliminate a seasonal dependence on crops, and it means food lasts longer on those long trade routes. So Mali traded in gold, salt, and sadly elephant tusks, and Musa took a huge cut for trade within his borders. And as we know, his borders were huge, and so was trade. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And not only does it make uh, food last longer, but also just more delicious. <laughs> I'm thinking specifically of uh, the the last time that we went to our favorite Italian restaurant, uh, Divino, and we had their uh, their steak. And it always has like that that kind of like flaky salt, salt. <laughs> brine on top. Oh my god! Uh, so good. Okay. Melts in the mouth. <laughs> um, but with huge borders, how does an emperor manage his empire? Well, by ceding control to local governors, who were each in control of a province. Every village had its own mayor, and as far as I can tell, this sort of division of power was not super common at the time. I don't know. That's some of the sources I had said that. As I looked into, I tried to look into other places in Africa, like Ghana, or like other empires around Mali. What kind of control did they have? There was one empire that I found that did have like some sort of, uh, like governor control, but then like everything kind of fell apart. So. I'm not sure how to be like, well, Mansa Musa, extremely progressive. Yeah. The thing as well is that a lot of our sources are actually drawing upon oral storytelling, mm. which is, I mean, one way to think about it is just a, a, a long, centuries-long game of telephone. But actually, uh, according to some of the sources that I consulted, this tradition of oral storytelling in Western Africa, the people who you you have to train to do it, and mm -hmm. you essentially train for years and years. So it's not a case that you're just memorizing the cliff notes of some stories. In theory, you're you're learning the same story rote. Yeah. So that being said, if the story does not focus upon things like internal governance of the of, of an empire then that's a big blind spot in history for future scholars so who knows sure as with all of history right if it's not written down somewhere it's pretty much lost yeah you're more likely to focus on something like oh and here's how many elephants he had in his entourage. And here's how much gold, you know, here's how, how much gold each of his, uh, each of his staff was carrying, etc, etc. Then that, that image, uh, hold that in the back of your mind, because that is going to come up again very shortly. But yeah, it's uh, those slightly sexier details, I guess, than, um, you know. Local governance and what exactly did the mayor 
what was the mayor's purview. Look, <laughs> like, we all love uh, getting right into the Excel spreadsheets of the HR department. Right, that's, guys? Don't yeah, we? yeah, but unfortunately that's not what we have here. Okay, so Mazza's got local rulers to help him, fat stacks, lots of religious fervor, and nowhere to put it. What's an emperor to do? He is gonna... He's, he's gonna, gonna go hodge. on tour, he's yeah. Hodge, baby. He's gonna have a, a big old trip. Uh, so one of the things Mansa Musa is probably most famous for is his 1324 pilgrimage or Hajj to Mecca. Uh, so for those who don't know, one of the five pillars of Islam. Yeah, one of the five pillars of Islam is correct me if I'm wrong here that every adult at least once in their life, provided that they are of good health and financially able to do so, should make the pilgrimage to Mecca. I believe it's every man. Every man. I don't know that women are allowed into Mecca. Oh my. Okay. Um, but provided that you you fit those other prerequisites, you should do that. And as we mentioned before, Mansa Musa himself was a devout Muslim, and uh, much of the Mali Empire at this time as well was was also uh, practicing Islam. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Alicia is doing some fervent fact-checking as we speak. Oh, whoops. Sorry. Fact-check. The Hajj Ministry has officially allowed women of all ages to make the pilgrimage without a male relative. So, so now, yeah, so we don't so, need to do that in post. So women are allowed to Hajj. Uh, I apologize. There we go. All right. Glad, <laughs> glad we got that out of the way. Prior to this journey, the Mali Empire was relatively unknown to the rest of Africa, but this pilgrimage represented a huge PR opportunity for Mansa Musa and the people of his empire. After Musa travelled through Egypt, this obscurity would completely disappear. Purportedly, Mansa Musa travelled with an entourage of tens of thousands of people. Arab writers from this time reported that his caravan contained dozens of camels, each one loaded with 130 kilograms, or 300 pounds, of gold. Upon meeting the Sultan of Egypt, Musa's caravan would spend and give away so much gold that the price of this precious commodity would drop in Egypt for the next 12 years. So I genuinely don't know if we're happy about that in the long run. However, I saw a a source recently that said... They were still singing praises about him 12 years after he visited Cairo. Sure. Because he had been so generous with his money. Basically, everywhere he went, he just kind of showered gold on, like, the traders. And everyone just got, like, a cut of this gold. (laughs) Um, He had supposedly 60,000 people in his entourage. 16,000 slave women carried his... Like, like his tent and like all his provisions, um, hundreds of camels. So not only was he riding camels, but also they were carrying gold and they were also carrying like everything they needed in order to set up camp because you have an entourage of 60,000 people. Mm-hmm. It's just insane. And, and he covered 4,000 miles, by the way. Yeah, through some of the harshest territory in the on the continent of Africa as well. And just so you can picture it more accurately in your head, I had this image in my mind that these camels were strapped with, like, gold ingots on their backs. It's, so it's mostly gold dust that they're carrying, right? Oh, okay, I didn't know that. Yeah, big old sacks of gold dust. 
So he he's rolling like a baller. Uh, the outcome of all this spending in Egypt was that Mansa Musa began to run out of money, or at least according to some sources, he ran out of money. According to others, he he kind of took pity on the merchants of Egypt for for dropping the value of gold twenty five percent. So on his return journey, in a move that brought huge relief to the moneylenders of Cairo, he borrowed his own gold back at a rate of uh, higher interest which send the value of gold in the area back up. However, both the spike in the market and the moneylender's relief would be short-lived. As soon as Musa returned to his kingdom, he repaid his entire debt in one installment. This smart lesson in managing one's personal finances efficiently probably didn't make the merchants of Cairo feel any better. So he consolidated all his loans into one easy repayment. <laughs> and then, so like for a second, they're like, oh, it's going to be okay. The price of gold is back up. We're back where we need to be. And all of a sudden he just like showers the economy back with the gold and it just like plummets again. Mm-hmm. Uh, there isn't a lot of information about his actual like pilgrimage, like his actual hajj, as far as I can tell. Like there's a lot of information about him going to Mecca, but not a lot of information of him in Mecca Mm -hmm. or coming back. I think while he was there, he also spent a lot of money to buy books um, and to kind of take things back with him. He really wanted to create libraries and things like that. So he, he spent a lot of money on books as far as I can tell. Yeah. And again, this is something that we we covered it in the uh, Golden Ages episode when we were talking about the Islamic Empire and the Golden Age of Islam. They really were trying to further one of the core tenets of Islam, which was the pursuit of learning for learning's sake. And so I think from Mansa Musa's perspective, the knowledge of the world did not lie within the kingdom of Mali. You you could learn so much from the outside world, provided that you could find and procure the right people and the right resources. And so many of the sources that we consulted for this episode talk about him kind of headhunting all these high-level bureaucrats, architects, scholars, and then taking them back to the Mali Empire. One thing that they do do talk about on this uh, pilgrimage, and we'll, we'll touch on it a little bit later... Apparently, every so for those who don't know, um, Friday and for for Muslims is the day of prayer, and so because they didn't have mosques along this route to reach Mecca, every Friday, Mansa Musa would commission like a new mosque be built along this route, just so that him and his entire caravan like of people within could pray. a day they yeah. would build a mosque in a day so that he could pray. Yeah. So I guess, like, fuck you, Amish people, if you, like, strutting your stuff because you can throw up a barn in an afternoon. Try constructing a mosque in a day in the middle of the desert, huh? We've referenced uh, the Watcher's puppet history before. They literally just put out an episode (laughs) on Mansa Musa. Um, And in it, they talk about how he created basically a pool for his wife to swim in in the middle of the desert yeah just things like that to kind of show how how much money he has but also how i don't want to say reckless but just like he's just like get it done you know she wants to swim she misses swimming 
build a pool in the middle of the desert. Maybe we'll touch on this a little bit later, because in many respects, Mansa Musa is a very intelligent uh, leader and a real pragmatist. So again, one of the things that's oft repeated, uh, repeated is uh, when he met the Sultan of Egypt, the Sultan of Egypt said that he would only meet Mansa Musa if he bowed to him and recognized him as his superior, I guess. Mansa Musa refused to do this. But a very pragmatic workaround was that he said he would meet in the court of the the sultan and that he would bow to Allah. And so essentially he was showing deference, but not showing direct deference to the sultan of Egypt. Right. Just a very some very intelligent statementship, uh, I I think, there, you know, you're, you're having your cake and eating it. You're like, I am about to bow. I am not bowing to you. I'm bowing to God. Uh huh. You're just in the same vicinity. Yeah. You're, you're bow adjacent. But other reports that I've heard about him are some pretty wacky, like Kanye West type <laughs> nonsense. I mean, when you do have the equivalent of $400 billion, I think your mind gets a little bit. I think there are studies which show, you know, for every however many thousand dollars you have, you become less and less able to empathize with people around you. And so he would do wacky things like when um, when followers would uh, come before his court, they would have to not only bow before him, but they would have to throw dirt over themselves. So they had to be pre-dirty. You couldn't see Mansa Musa wearing clean clothes uh, because I think that shows how how high above you he is. And then you have to proceed to make yourself more dirty in front of him. Uh, you got to pre-dirtify, and then you got to dirtify in his presence. Yeah, and uh, he also had like a personal. So he he would kind of talk to his second in command. He would have a speaker who would then shout to the masses. It reminds me of like some cartoon. I can't remember, but it's like like <laughs> like whispering in somebody's ear, and then the uh-huh. other person like talks. Yeah, it's it's a real power move to walk into the room and be like, King Musa says, "Good afternoon, everybody. Thanks for coming out." Like it, it's it's weird, but but it works. It certainly shows your power. Um, mm-hmm. He would also do things like if you showed up. They're in a hot area, but if you showed up wearing sandals, he would execute you. Yeah, again, I th- I don't know about you. I only heard that from from one That's source. True. Yeah, but I don't like having heard about this person in the round now. I can kind of believe it. I I feel like in some respects he was a very intelligent man. He was very much and we'll we'll talk about it in just a little bit very much about learning and furthering his empire and consolidating his power in a very intelligent manner. But like everybody else, he is a human being. And I think he's just a little bit unhinged. Yeah, it's kind of like the royal family in the UK. They do tons of great stuff. Like, you know, they're opening new schools and shopping centers and going on royal visits, etc. But, you know, if you are like um a 16 year old girl at a party they will molest you you know so everybody has their quirks i guess 
I guess. Yeah. It's probably fine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not going to let that be buried. <laughs> <laughs> Don't. <laughs> Don't let it be buried. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, they're on our money, but they shouldn't be allowed to touch our underage girls. They shouldn't be... <laughs> nobody should be allowed to touch underage girls or boys or anybody. Um, but especially not the royals. So, hey, fuck you guys <laughs> for covering that up. <laughs> Back to Mansa Musa and his Hajj. Uh, so his Hajj didn't just benefit the people outside of Mali. During his journey, he accrued uh, a huge following of Arab scholars, bureaucrats, and architects who returned with him to his home country. One of the architects was a man named Ishik El Tajin, who introduced advanced building techniques to Mali and helped design a wide array of new structures. These included a new palace named Madago, the mosque at Gao, the Great Mosque at Timbuktu, and El Tajin's most famous design, the Emperor's Chamber in the country's capital, uh, Niani. He even helped design Mali's second largest city. So again, he's accruing all those uh, outside resources and then funneling them back into the Mali Empire. Uh, For those of you who have listened to our SideQuest episode on Golden Ages, you'll know that the Islamic Empire was hugely powerful and influential during this period of time, Musa's pilgrimage helped increase knowledge of the Islamic world within Mali and therefore share what was at the time cutting-edge technology and a deep well of knowledge. New mosques, libraries and universities sprang up and Timbuktu became the hub of the Islamic world in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, This pilgrimage also helped put the Mali Empire on the map, literally for Europeans. In 1339, the first European map featuring Mali was produced in Italy, and over the course of two centuries, many cartographers from Italy, Germany, and Spain would include prominent depictions of both the country and Mansa Musa himself. You can see one of the most famous depictions of Mansa Musa in the maps made by Spanish cartographer Abraham Cresquez, I think is how you pronounce that. Uh, where Musa is sat upon a throne uh, with a golden crown and scepter. So that's the Catal- the the 1375 Catalan world map, I believe, a mm-hmm. world atlas. Mm-hmm. And in it, uh, it's basically like, well, Mali's made it because uh, he's on the map. And he's literally, he, like, the picture of him has, like, his crown covered in, like, gold foil and he's holding a scepter and he's got like a little uh like gold nugget in his hand that he's like holding and like staring at admiredly as he like sits cross-legged on his throne. Sorry, but the the hand gesture you're doing there definitely looks like you are cupping and fondling testicles. I'm just going to That's how I view gold nuggets. <laughs> he's just he's <laughs> testing the the gold nuggets for cancer. Mm. Mm-hmm. As you all should do. Yes. Gentlemen, check your gold nuggets on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, ladies. Also check, check your gold nuggets. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's super important. Uh, so during his Hajj, the Mali Empire did not remain static, however. There were several rebellions on the empire's borders which needed to be quashed. However, in a turn of events that shows that some people really do have all the luck, Mansa Musa's generals were not only able to successfully quell these uprisings, also annex these regions, thus expanding the empire's reach even further. You know, if it were another emperor, he would—he was gone for like what two or three years. Mm-hmm. He would be gone, and like his Hajj, and then like there would be rebellions, and the 
the generals would quash them, but then the generals would be like, well, where's the emperor been? You know? It's I'm, on. It's my time to shine, and then, like, take over the empire. Yeah. But, try and stage a coup. Yeah. But the fact that he just basically, like, saunters back in, and he's like, I'm back! And they're like, welcome back, my king. Or he would come back, and uh, it, th- there would be a cutaway between, like, his gleaming empire beforehand, and then coming back, and for some reason there's, Smoke like, rising. there's graffiti all over the walls, there's the sound of, like, dogs barking, and, like, gunshots, and he takes his sunglasses off, and he's like, what the fuck did you guys do? <laughs> But no, I mean they they held strong, and I believe this is the period of time when they when they started annexing like Timbuktu. And... Yeah, so they included Timbuktu, which would become like a really important part of the Mali Empire as well. Yeah, basically these cities became like huge centers of learning because of this Hodge. He he took all these books, like he bought all these books and brought them back, and then implemented these great libraries, which were some of the greatest in the continent of Africa mm-hmm. um, and and turned these places into places worth visiting, like not just a trade city, but a, a city worth going to for the architecture and the libraries yeah, and um, the universities. I was just going to say, you know you're a good manager when you take a week off and you come back to the office and like everything is still running smoothly. That's how you know like you fully read. Way to take credit for yeah. <laughs> else's work (laughs) great job me me did a great job well done i guys i can see that everything has been running smoothly in my absence and therefore i wanted to give myself a raise yeah he he's the manager who thinks he's really popular with his team and but in actuality it's like every time they see him walking down the corridor and they're like fuck doug's here it's like hey Hey. Hey, buddy. Working hard or hardly working, am I right? Ha <laughs> ha. Okay. See you at the pub on Friday. It's like, oh, I think I've got a thing. Ha <laughs> <laughs> That fucking guy. So Mansa Musa, obviously an incredibly important, incredibly influential historical figure. Arguably one of the, the rare cases of, you know, great, great man or great figure history that, that boils down to Maybe a you pretty know. good dude. <laughs> yeah, exactly. One one central personality. But besides having a net worth larger than a Silicon Valley tycoon and an entourage that would make a Kardashian blush, what was Mansa Musa's lasting legacy to the world? I just want to say good line. Well done. I Thank like you. That. Thank you. I, I sat and pondered on that for a little bit. Well, Musa's reign marks what's agreed by most sources to be the pinnacle of the Mali Empire. This would be the period during which this region was both at its wealthiest and its largest, covering what would today include Mauritania, Senegal, Gambia, Guinea, Burkina Faso, Mali, Niger, Nigeria, and Chad. Sorry. Chad. <laughs> and Chad is the. I don't know why I said it like it was a dude's name. Uh, because it sounds like. Because it sounds like. It would be. Okay. <laughs> like, everything uh, like, Burkina Faso, Chad. We're, we're, we are losing listeners. They are signing uh, off as we're speaking. Uh, and Chad. Unfortunately, the prestige of this empire did not last long after Musa's death in 1337. The throne was passed to his sons, and we're not 100% sure whether they mismanaged the empire, were challenged by some insurmountable problem, or both. But the coalition of different nations fell apart and the empire began to crumble shortly after. I 
I'd like to revise that statement slightly because it's it's not I don't think it was the case that his empire fell overnight like as soon as he was dead people started fighting on the streets etc but it would never be as powerful and as influential mm. as it was during his lifetime and again the historians seem to agree that the Mali empire lasted until around about 1670 so you know like still a good 300 year run going on yeah, but most sources seem to be like, and then his sons took over and they ruined his legacy. Like, harsh man. <laughs> yeah, but but rich kids, am I right? It's true. You grow up wealthy and all they want to do is get a new Ferrari. Yeah. Or, you know, I guess a carriage. <laughs> and you try, like, giving them summer jobs and stuff like that so they can learn a bit of responsibility. It never works. Yeah, because like all the guys that you put in charge of them are like afraid of what, you know, what they'll do if like uh if they tell their daddy what's going on. So having been born rich kids ourselves, yes, we, we obviously, obviously know. <laughs> 100%. That's why we're recording from uh our third recording studio inside our our summer our mansion. mansion. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I prefer this one. I really like the light and space in here. I don't know. It's not my favorite. I'm thinking about buying a new one. Yeah. Maybe on the Mediterranean. Hmm. Let's see. Uh, jokes. We're actually recording from... Yeah, this is our kind of spare bedroom come just box room. So, um... Still, the Mali Empire, especially during the rule of Mansa Musa, left its mark on history, especially in the region of West Africa. After annexing the cities of Timbuktu and Gao, Mansa Musa helped turn those cities into centers of learning. This was done in part through construction such as the impressive... Jing- Try your best. <laughs> Jinger... Jingerber? Jingerber? Oh, boy. If you're looking for me to jump in and help you, <laughs> I don't know either. Oh, no. Why don't we both say it at the same time? Ready? Three, two, one. Jinger a bear mosque in Timbuktu. Great job. Yeah, we nailed that. But also through the establishments of numerous madrasas and libraries. Uh, a, a madrasa is like an Islamic university. Right? Yeah, or like an Islamic school. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The Mali Empire became a wellspring of knowledge during this time and helped further promote behaviors that were common during the Islamic Golden Age, collating knowledge from across the known world and furthering it through study and scientific inquiry. This furthering of the Islamic faith, the expansion of an empire, and the transition from market towns to centers of learning, all of this could have happened without the leadership of Mansa Musa. Who can say for certain what the history of West Africa would have been like without his influence? Nevertheless, these achievements, in addition to his mind-boggling wealth, are what we've come to associate with the man known as Mansa Musa. Yeah. So, essentially, I mean, who, who's to say if another high-ranking official in the court of Abu Bakr II had been put in charge in his absence? He still <laughs> would have been super wealthy. Right. Uh, I guess the question is then, what, what do you do with all that wealth and influence, mm-hmm. right? And yeah, would... Because would Abu Bakr, if he had stayed, gone on a pilgrimage? Something else that I was curious about. So, in 1375, you first see Mansa Musa on the Catalan World Atlas. Mm -hmm. In the 1400s, the Portuguese come to Africa. I'm not saying that's directly responsible, 
because so what you're saying is Mansa Musa is responsible for the egg tart, the Portuguese egg tart yes. being introduced into mm-hmm. Western Africa and the effect. I mean, yeah, they people did begin to refer to Timbuktu as the El Dorado of Africa. So, and what <laughs> I mean, what, what did the Spanish conquistadors do in El Dorado? A lot of rape and pillaging. Oh, I so, thought they just. Built a nice summer home. <laughs> uh-huh. But, yeah, maybe the Portuguese looked at these uh, Catalonian maps and they were like, oh, that would be a great Look place to... Look <laughs> Yeah. And then, I don't... Maybe they were like, oh, there's not as much gold as we had hoped, but there sure are a lot of people that we could sell into slavery. Hey! Yay. Yeah. Um, the butterfly effect, right? So I mean, we don't, I, I have no proof of that whatsoever. It was just like a passing thought in my brain. And then I was like trying to look up before we started recording today. I was like, you know, what? What inspired the Portuguese to to start plundering Africa for its gold? Um, <laughs> it was there. That's why. Uh, should we talk some weird facts? Weird fact time. Okay. Could you uncover my weird fact on your phone? Because I can't, I can't see my weird fact. Of course. So I wanted to... Uh, so Mansa Musa, as we, speaking of kind of indirect consequences of, of otherwise nice actions, Mansa Musa helped to devalue gold in Egypt mm-hmm. for over a decade, right? I came across an article in which he mentioned, entitled something like Four People Who Managed to uh, Deflate Entire Economies. Okay. Uh, So have you heard of uh, Ponzi schemes before? Do you know what a Ponzi scheme is? And I have been a victim of one. Oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) I didn't mean to trigger you. Um, Yeah, I mean, but you've heard of a Ponzi scheme before. Of course, of course. Do do you know roughly what it is? So as far as I'm aware, a Ponzi scheme is where, so it's kind of like a triangle, like one person, basically you have people buy in and you take that money to be like, you're you're investing in this thing and I'm going to give you returns and you take money from other people to give yeah. investors, but really there's no investing going on. Yeah, I think the triangle you're thinking of is a pyramid scheme, which is a slightly different sure. thing. But you, you've, you've yeah, got yeah. it right. Like in a Ponzi scheme, in I guess traditional investment, uh, you invest in something, that company turns a, prod- a profit through a product or service, and the profit... Uh, is skimmed to give money back to those initial investors. In a Ponzi scheme, all of the money that is going to uh, new investors is coming from previous investors Mm -hmm. in a never-ending or seemingly never-ending chain of money just trading hands until eventually uh, the entire house of cards collapses. Uh, Not unlike the uh, Actual House of Cards. I, I was going to say, series. yeah, not unlike when uh, Netflix decides to make one of their flagship shows based around uh, Kevin Spacey. Uh, the Ponzi scheme is named after a man named Charles Ponzi, who was an Italian, I guess you would describe him as like a grifter or a con man, uh, who at the beginning of the 20th century came up with a scheme to resell uh, Spanish coupons, coupons from Spain, which you would have said, they were like postal coupons. And so the idea was that because of the difference in the GDP between Spain and the USA at this time, that 
uh, American investors could buy these postal coupons and that they would make a return on each purchase. But what he was actually doing was just taking money from newer invest or taking money from older investors and paying it back to newer investors. Uh, so of Charles Ponzi, his big break came uh, after yet another failed venture. By chance, he opened a letter from a Spanish company inquiring about a catalogue he started that had gone bankrupt and saw an international reply coupon that was enclosed. Ponzi realised that the reply coupons, which were redeemed to pay the cost of international postage, could be bought cheaply in Italy given post-World War I inflation, and then resold stateside. Ponzi made the audacious claim that he could double an investment in 90 days, and thus the first ever Ponzi scheme was born. He bought out the bank he was storing his profits in, and convinced his investors not to cash out, while in fact running his business at a huge loss. When reporters discovered that Ponzi's claimed profits were impossible, among other things, only 27,000 reply coupons were even in circulation, <laughs> even though Ponzi had supposedly sold 160 million of them to oh his customers. God. The bottom dropped out, causing the collapse of five banks and the loss of $20 million in investments. That's the equivalent of about $334 million in today's money. So, <laughs> so, but he, he got an entire scheme named after him and he, um, was apparently he this was not his uh only or even last so he didn't get scheme. his comeuppance he did i think he eventually got put into prison but he he was entirely unrepentant during <laughs> his entire career basically if he if he saw if he if he saw a mark he was gonna go for it mm. so uh yeah that's the story of the ponzi scheme okay so my weird fact has to do with uh timbuktu oh so, Timbuktu is often used as shorthand for the farthest place imaginable. Right, from from here to Timbuktu, <laughs> exactly. sure. Exactly, but why? Okay. So, in 18... We can see, like, examples of it in, in history. In 1863, when an English writer, Lady Duff Gordon, wrote in a letter uh, in Cairo, it is growing dreadfully cockney here. I must go to Timbuktu. <laughs> Uh-huh. So she was writing of Cairo, and meanwhile, like, the streets of Cairo are just filled by, by you know, absolute lads who are like, You alright, love? Yeah. Alright, it's a fucking camel, winnie. Yeah. Oh, you want to go to fucking pyramids of war? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think you'll find <laughs> the streets runneth over with cockneys. She wanted some of, like, that uh, traditional Egyptian fare, and I all she could get was, like, like, cockles and mussels. Cairo isn't authentic anymore. And I just need to go to Timbuktu. Oh, she's one of them chicks. That, I mean, obviously she is. Yeah. Uh, and then the famous author uh, D.H. Lawrence wrote in 1930, probably my favorite rhyme I've ever read in my life. Okay. Um, and the world, it didn't give a hoot if his blood was British or Timbuktu. That doesn't work. <laughs> what? <laughs> Where are you from, sir? Oh, I'm a Timbuktu born bred. Timbuktu. Timbuktu sounds like when you eat a bunch of West African cuisine and then you have like a lot of gas afterwards. Like, burp. That was a little Timbuktu. Excuse my Timbuktu. Um, Dude, that stinks. Don't make it. Don't try and make it cute. Ah, uh, truly a great writer. <laughs> But it still doesn't explain why we use Timbuktu as, like, the farthest place imaginable. Sure. 
Well, supposedly, all those pesky colonizers had heard of the riches of Timbuktu, since it was this fabulous trade city full of, you know, universities and mosques. Um, and they were hoping for an El Dorado-type situation, but it was so difficult to get there. They, In some instances, they say it was like six weeks of walking without water in order to get to Timbuktu. But by the time, quote-unquote, explorers had arrived to the city in 1830, it no longer held its former glory as an Islamic center, peak of knowledge, and city of gold. It was kind of run down at that point. Right. Um, But it still kind of remained difficult to get to, and hence from here to Timbuktu. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that is uh, our story of King Musa. Yeah. Mansa Musa himself. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, please give us a like, give us a follow, and leave a review. This has been Enter the Rabbit Hole, as always, reminding you to... If you ever go to a new place with your entire entourage, try and keep it low-key. Yes, put some money into the local economy. Don't put so much money into the local economy that you crash the local economy for the next 10 or 12 years. I don't think that will ever be a problem for us, but... Not for you and me, but we don't know who is listening, all right? That's true, guys. Keep it tight. Keep your wallet tight. Yeah. Take care, Mr. Bezos. (laughs) Take care, Mr. Musk. See you later. All right, guys. Enter the Rabbit Hole is written and presented by William Grant and Alicia Palmer. The music was created by Glenn Marshall. More information and sources can be found in the episode description. You can email us at etrhthepod at gmail or follow us on Instagram at etrhthepod. Thanks for listening.